This is producer Michael Miracle. Thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast. Be sure to check out our website at iworkforhim.com. That's iwork4him.com for all of our past shows and podcasts, plus Jim's blogs, reading recommendations, and tons of great I Work For Him resources. All available at iworkforhim.com. And now, today's broadcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in to I Work For Him this afternoon as we're live right here in Tampa Bay on AM 57910 and FM 102.1. But you're also live online at iHeartRadio and Let'sTalkFaith.com. And maybe you might be listening to the podcast on any number of different platforms. However you hear the show today, just know that we've prayed for you, that something that's said today will cause you to dig deeper in connecting your faith to your work and connecting what you hear on Sunday with what you do in your nine to five. You know, imagine you have the world by the tail. You have everything you want and everything you need. You live in a great city with great people. You have a great job, an amazing wife, and amazing friends. Yet it all leaves you all thinking, is there more? Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you think you have everything. You own everything. You need nothing. You need no one. Either way, God is a way of grabbing hold of you and getting your attention. For our guest today, life got to be a lot bigger than him. Ward Brem is an entrepreneur for life from Minnesota. He has a passion for life and a passion for the poor in Africa. He loves Jesus and his wife, Chris, and he has a story to tell. And I wanted you to hear it. Ward Brem, welcome to I Work For Him. Oh, gosh. Thanks for having me on, Jim. It's a real blessing. You know, when I saw the preview for the book, when I got it from from your uh, publisher, I'm like, wow, I like it when a guy could say, hey, bigger than me because a lot of times people get caught up in in all the really cool stuff that god has them do and and your book just intrigued me and having read it now i love the way the lord worked in it but i don't want to give it all away i want to have a great conversation today but i just want to thank you for writing it i love it when somebody can write their story and it's all about the lord but that i can grow spiritually from reading the book i really really liked it so that the title of the book that ward wrote is bigger than me just when i thought i had all the answers God changed the questions. I love that. I love that. I love that. Love that. <laughs> all right. So this this book is all about your legacy, Ward, it, but it's really about your struggles in life as well, and how God draws you close to Him in order to keep you on that straight and narrow road that He wanted you on. What prompted you to put your life in writing? Well, actually, I I really never intended for this to be a book originally, Jim. I I uh, have a number of medical issues, and I got to thinking. Uh, theoretically, if, if I knew that I only had 10 years to live, uh, what, what would I, would it change my life? And the answer was a resounding yes. And then when I pressed in on myself and said, well, how would it change? That became a much more complicated answer. But, but one of the, one of the things that came out of that was I would, I would gather my adult children, uh, my family around me, and I would try to download everything that I could as it relates to things that are important to me issues of life that are that are really important that oftentimes you know we don't talk to anybody about uh and 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 so it started out as a memoir and then a few friends here in minneapolis read the the original manuscript and and encouraged uh it, it to take the direction of a regular of a regular book well and i imagine your wife chris got to read this as well right so she approved everything you put in writing <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it, this is about a four-year process, and Chris was convinced that she'd read the book, and I wasn't so convinced <laughs> early on. But anyway, just just a few months ago, we actually read the whole thing together, chapter by chapter. I put together some study questions for it, 
Uh, and so uh, she, she was impressed, and she's my toughest critic. So of course. a lot of fun. Of course. How many years have you and Chris been married? We've been married now 34 years. That's awesome. That is yeah. so cool. All right. You write in your opening of the book that you had an amazing father. How did your father's example make a difference in your life? You know, it's interesting, Jim. I actually, thinking, going back to our previous conversation about memoir versus book, I originally thought this chapter would come out because it, it just a chapter on my dad. And not only did it not come out, it was made the first chapter. And what I've come to realize uh, is that I was deeply blessed with having two parents that loved me unconditionally. And I was, I was a real challenge. I was a borderline juvenile delinquent growing up. And, and their general approach to me was always, you know, why is this wonderful boy doing all these naughty things? Uh, and it, I had a very, a very strict upbringing so that when I, when I broke, you know, various rules, there were, there were consequences. But I was loved unconditionally, and I always thought everyone was. And I've come to realize uh, that parents are complicated and that not everyone experiences unconditional love from their parents. Uh, for me, it provided me with a tremendous amount of confidence. Uh, it instilled in me uh, the fact that I have uh, potential. Uh, they, were my, they were my greatest cheerleaders. Uh, and again, you know, a lot of people don't have that experience. So I, it made me realize what a blessing and what a gift uh, uh, really good and caring parents are. Mm, I love it. And it is, it is true. And, and today, as my wife and I do a lot of mentoring and you, of course, are doing a lot of investing in other people, mentoring other people, you realize hmm, growing up with parents, number one, that stayed married, number two, that really did care enough to discipline you. Those are those were not common occurrences, even in Minnesota, where people really live pretty standard lives. I mean, it was right. we, we were we were blessed. All right, we're talking today with Ward Brem about his book, Bigger Than Me. And I'm telling you, you got to stay tuned. At the bottom of the half hour, we are going to give away a couple copies of this. This is a great, great book. All right, you had quite a successful career, Ward, in, in brewing a successful business with lots of influence in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Yet God caused you to stop, to pause with your first trip to Africa. What did God want from you first and foremost? Well, I think what happened to me, and I think happens to a lot of people that experience a measure of success in their first half of their life, is by the age of 40, I had accomplished uh, every goal that I'd ever set for myself. Uh, in fact, if, I, if someone would have told me that I'd have achieved, achieved those goals by 40, I'd have signed, signed a contract saying I'd be happy forever, you know, the American dream. And what I realized was, and one of the blessings of having experienced uh, again, a measure of success is that I was uh, I wasn't happy, and I, I and I couldn't figure it out. You know, most people I think are under the illusion that if they got uh, one more promotion, if they won the lottery, if they if they achieved their goals, that they would be that they would be happy. But once you achieve those, you realize uh, there is something more. I didn't know what that was, but I had this strong sense. I, I describe it as a smoldering discontent uh, and, a, and, and a deep level of angst. And coincidentally, I no longer believe in coincidences, by the way. My, <laughs> my, pa my, past, my pastor asked me uh, in one of my, at, that, at the time it was very infrequent that I go to church. 
but I did. And my, my pastor, uh, since I was a child, uh, out of the blue, invited me to go to Africa with him. And it was, it was, uh, it was ridiculous. I mean, there was no, no way I was going to go to Africa, particularly with him. Uh, he said, pray about it. And I looked him in the eye and I said, you're the pastor. You pray about it. I'll think about it. I didn't even know what he was talking about. And, uh, and I, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And two months later, I found myself with a ticket to Ethiopia, uh, in my hand. I think, I think in terms of God's plan for me, that was the beginning of, uh, a great humbling. I, at, when I was 40 years old, I figured I knew everything. I had the answers. I had the answers to life's questions. Uh, and in the process of, of being so full of myself, uh, and focused on myself, you know, I had, uh, unbeknownst to me, become a jerk. Uh, and when I went to Africa, uh, God, God used that amazing experience, uh, 25,000 miles away and probably a million light years, uh, away from my comfort zone, uh, to show me people who had achieved that peace that I was looking for, people who, who had that, uh, personal, uh, countenance. Uh, happiness is too condescending a word, but these are people living in situations and circumstances and in poverty that we can't even imagine. So it's perplexing. How can these people that have such difficult and, uh, and incredibly tough lives uh, give forth this, 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 this countenance, this, this peace, this uh, uh, joy in, in spite of those or maybe in, in retrospect and in, because of the circumstances and the simple lives that they lead? And what I realized is that they were directly connected to God. We're talking today with Ward Brim. He wrote this book, Bigger Than Me. Just when I thought I had all the answers, God changed the questions. Now, I haven't asked Ward a lot of questions about his business background, but ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, this is no ordinary man. God used Ward Brem in amazing ways, and he's an amazingly humble man to be on I Work for him today as he has touched the lives of people across the globe and, and yet been in the presence of multiple multiple times with the presidents of the United States. Ward Brem, welcome back to I Work for him. Thanks, Jim. All right, so let's go back to that night, that night when you're in Africa, when you see in these people an, a, a piece that passes all understanding, and you're going, hey, they got what I want, yet they don't have any of the stuff that I have. And, and you're like, I, I, something's got to change. Tell us about that night. Well, I was having a difficult time, as a lot of people on their first trip to sub-Saharan Africa, particularly the rural sections, do because it was so hard to relate with what I saw. The poverty was on an obscene scale. Uh, the medical facilities nearly non-existent. And what happened to me, Jim, is I, I, we were driving along this dusty road, and I saw a little girl on the side of the road carrying a ridiculously heavy bundle of sticks for firewood back to her village, which is probably five miles away. And I had him stop the car, and I got out of the car, and I knelt down next to this little girl staring into these eyes. She was terrified of this guy that was like I dropped down to Mars. But, but uh, she was four years old. This, the rope that connected the logs uh, sticks to her back, cutting into her tiny little chest. And, and I couldn't help but compare the life of this child 
to my own daughter, who was four years old back in, in Minneapolis. And it, I, I could almost hear the cracking sound of my heart. It just, it just, it just broke my heart. And, and that little girl led me about uh, six or seven hours later around a, uh, a, a bonfire, again, in the, in the middle of a desert in rural Ethiopia, uh, where I finally, ju- I had no idea what I was there. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what was going forward. And I, and I literally just got down on my knees and, and I spoke, uh, to Jesus for the first time in my life, really. I mean, I've, I've been brought up a cultural Christian, but it, it really didn't have any impact on my life. And now I prayed to that Jesus and said, I don't know why I'm here, but I suspect you have a hand in it. And, uh, for the rest of this time I'm here, which is a five-week trip, I am going to surrender. I'm just going to give it up. I'm not going to be uncomfortable. You can do anything that you want with me during this period of time, and, I'll, and, I, and I'm not going to complain. And it, almost instantly, it was, I did experience that peace that surpasses all understanding. In fact, it was so strong, I didn't want to go home. Now, I have often said, I've had the privilege of also being in some developing nations in the Caribbean and with some Christian business guys. And I would say, again, Christian business guys that weren't necessarily Christ following business guys, but they called themselves Christian business guys. And I saw the incredible paradigm shift going on in their minds when they saw what real poverty looked and felt smelled like. Uh, it's it do you think that that's an experience that every I, I to me i think it's an experience that every american should see an experience in order to have a proper perspective to what we've been given here in this country yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more and and the the the, the reality is is particularly as as business people who are uh experts at solving problems and coming up with strategies when they when they see the situations uh, that these people are living in, for example, in the Mathari Valley slum in, in Nairobi, I took a group of YPO hotshots and on our way out, uh, asked them, I said, okay, what would be your strategy for, if you were born inside that slum, what would be your strategy for getting out of it? Every one of their ideas was shot down because it required capital. Uh, and finally, the conclusion was they would either have to commit a crime in order to get the capital they needed to, to, to build any kind of a footbridge out of that poverty, or they'd have to sell themselves, uh, which are the only two options facing people that are in that abject poverty. So it, it, it um, immediately creates, number one, understanding, and number two, gratefulness and, uh, of, of where we live. Uh, in America, a, a, a newfound appreciation for the things uh, that we do have and the safety nets that are set up for our kids. It's an amazingly humble experience. And it, for me, it was more humbling for the fact that I had a, I struggled with contentment, and yet I saw contentment in the eyes of these people. I, this happened to be on one of the, like I said, one of the Caribbean island nations. I saw contentment in the eyes of people who lived with a mud floor and a metal roof and two mm-hmm. pairs of clothing. And yet they were embracing life way better than I had. And it was it was humbling. I, I, I loved it. And that's what part of your story that I saw. I thought, wow, the Lord used very similar things in your life to just get your attention. So after that five week trip, you came home. Do you consider yourself a Christ follower at the end after the end of those five five weeks? Or are you still mm, trying to figure it out? No, I'm still figuring out. Actually, it was interesting uh, that for me. 
I was the most passionate uh, about the injustices that I saw. You know, little five-year-old kids going blind, you know, for lack of a 50-cent medicine. I held the, I held the hand of a, of a mother, 21-year-old mother in Masaki, Uganda. She died from AIDS and, and then looked up into the eyes of four, you know, brand-new, totally bewildered orphans. Uh, and, and I came back realizing uh, that a lot of the stories, a lot of the people that are coming back, uh, they, 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 they weren't explaining it in a compelling way. I mean, I've been to slideshows and church basements, you know, from, you know, well-meaning and totally dedicated missionaries, but it just didn't translate. And so I became basically a shameless advocate uh, for the extreme poor in Africa. It wasn't until I'd say about a year later that I that I actually realized that the secret master of ceremonies behind the scenes of this whole thing was Jesus. And so the timing for me was a little bit a little bit reversed, uh, but it became more and more apparent. And as and as time went on, uh, somehow I was slowly, slowly, slowly able to to give up the type A, you know, controlling nature that I have and let uh, and let Jesus drive. <laughs> That's always hard for us business types. It, well, it's hard for anybody. It, you know, it, it is it is hard for us type A super duper driver types, mm. uh, but it is hard for anybody to give up control, I think. So after you gave your life to Christ, did your family and your friends, did they believe that you really were going to change? You know, I would say particularly my best friends, uh, my wife saw the change immediately. Uh, she has been a follower of Jesus since she was 17. And so she'd reluctantly drag me to church from time to time. Uh, but she always had a strong faith. And uh, she realized right away that I'd had a very powerful uh, experience. I, I played my, my squash buddies that we play squash three or four times a week. Uh, one of them came up to me and said, I don't know, what is it about you? There's something different about you. And I said, really? What is it? He said, it seems as though you have a quieter soul. <laughs> I love that description because it was true. Uh, I, I think that when we, when we realize that, that we're not nowhere near as in charge of our lives as we think we are, and when we recognize uh, that God has a plan for our life, and then I was just so blessed to be able to find my purpose, which is to be an advocate for the poor in Africa. Uh, it opens, it just opens up whole new avenues of, of joy and contentment. All right, so let's now give people in the audience a, a feel for the kind of influence that you really had. I mean, at that point in time, how many businesses, did you own just one business or did you have two? No, I had two uh, insurance consulting firms, an employee benefits company, and a kind of a boutique estate planning firm here in, in Minneapolis. And how many employees did you have? Oh, boy, I think we had probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 25. Okay, so it was no it was no small little business that you're running, and you had a lot of influence. You're connected to a lot of people, but the Lord had something really incredible ahead for you. But it all started on that first trip to Africa. You know, why do you think, and we only got about 30 seconds left, but why do you think it was so easy to experience God in Africa? You know, the question... The question I'm asked more than any other by my friends in Africa is, what do you pray for? And I was kind of taken aback the first time, uh, but I'm asked that all the time. I mean, you have everything. You know, it, it sounds like you have 
like at least a couple cars and you have houses and you got hospitals and you got medical care. You know, what do you pray for? And I, and I realized that these people take nothing for granted. And as a result, they have a much more direct line to God. They need God. They need him. They need him for everything. All right, Ward, I, I promised the audience that we'd start talking about what the Lord did next, because this this trip to Africa was the paradigm. It, it almost turned your it, it was your halftime experience. It, it, it was. And, and everybody's heard me talk about the book halftime and the ministry halftime on this show dozens of times because that book halftime changed my life. But this was your halftime experience because you could look at your life before Africa and after Africa. And, and they were completely different lives, aren't they? Absolutely. So, uh, so how? What did the Lord have in mind for you in Africa? What What was next when you got back, and a year later you gave your life to to, to Jesus? What did the Lord have in mind for you? Well, I think I think He used that first trip uh, to humble me. I had I didn't know, I I didn't know how to spell humble when I was forty years old, and I came back and and started to wonder. You know what else don't I know anything about? And and started to have some of these big, uh, some of these big questions. I had always felt in the somewhere deep in deep in my soul that I would give back at some point, that I would that I'd make a contribution. But I always thought that that would be really boring. I just I just had pictures of uh, you know casseroles and church basements and slideshows, and none of that was true. Uh, uh, although I, I do. The interesting thing is I enjoy those things now. But uh, but what I found was once I had been humbled, uh, probably the most significant thing that happened to me, I met with a mentor of mine, Doug Cole, in Washington, D.C., uh, who had heard about some of the things that we were doing, building water uh, water pumps in Northwest Canyon and other things. And, and he asked me point blank, if you, were, if you were God, how would you help all those poor people over there? I mean, there are all these poor people that are just suffering and living miserable in miserable conditions. If you were God, what would you do? And I'll never forget it, Jim. My mind went completely blank. I, I can't imagine the expression I had, and I just kind of mumbled, I don't know. And he, he kept after me, and finally I got kind of mad, and I said, well, you be God. You tell me, what would you do? And he said, I, I'd change the hearts of the leaders. And when he said that, the truth of that statement resonated in every bone in my body. If, if you can change the leadership in these African countries, uh, y- you can turn a country around uh, from, from uh, abject poverty to prosperity, not over generations, but in a few years. Mm. And so my, my, it, it's, what, it's what got me involved in Washington, D.C. A year later, I took uh, Senator Dave Durenberger uh, with me to Africa, uh, both to the rural aspects uh, and projects that we were working on, but then also to the capitals where we met with the heads of state and other people in leadership positions. And that, and that really started chapter two of, uh, of, of, of my life in Africa, which was working with African uh, leaders uh, regarding the principles and precepts of Jesus among uh, those with political, uh, you know, racial, tribal differences, and it's just been just been a joy to see how uh, how Jesus can bring people together in so many powerful ways. And I love those stories in your book. I love it. Hey, we don't want to talk about religion, but 
You want to talk about Jesus? Absolutely. I want to talk about Jesus. <laughs> We're talking today with Ward Brim about his book and his life, the life that he kind of titled Bigger Than Me. Just when I thought I had all the answers, God changed the questions. And, you know, you can uh, you can get a copy of his book by going to his website, biggerthanmebook.com, biggerthanmebook.com. All right, so be, along the way through all of this, the Lord led you to understand the power of being silent, of being quiet. And I loved the story of how the Lord introduced you to the silent retreat as you called, I learned how to be a hermit at that silent <laughs> retreat place in Isanti, Minnesota, which I just, I would, I'm just, what I'm, I'm upset about is, okay, I'm reading about stuff now. Boy, would I have loved to know about that silent retreat place when I lived in mm-hmm. Minnesota. But how did going to those silent retreats where you were just alone with God without your briefcase, with it locked along with your computer in the, in the trunk of your car and all you have is your Bible. How did that silent time transform your life? Oh boy, uh, it 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 didn't transform it. it. It's transforming it because it has now become something that I that I try to do at least four times a year. I, I guess what led up to it is important, Jim, and that was that I was doing all these things for Jesus. I mean, I I and and and, and again, it's a whole different kind of pride that that I feel like, you know, I'm the guy, you know, I'm doing, I'm running around, I'm bringing leaders to Africa. I'm, I'm, I'm working on these various projects. I'm doing, 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 and found myself absolutely exhausted. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, the number one commandment, the number one thing Jesus couldn't have been clear is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And my definition of loving God was running around like a, like a nut trying to do things for him. And all of a sudden I came to realize what he wanted more than anything else was me. And when I started thinking about the tremendous gift that God had given me with this newfound faith and experience, the question came back, well, what could I give God back? And the, and it, and it, it, it a light bulb went on. I could give him my time. And I'd heard about this place. It's a uh, it's a Franciscan hermitage, uh, where you have your own little cabin. And I I made plans. I I went out to it for the first time. And to be honest with you, Jim, I was terrified. This is not this is not an easy thing to do because uh, once you pass those gates of silence, and once you're in your little uh, cabin, uh, you're alone, and you're really alone. And it's almost like being under a microscope because I don't know about you, but I can rationalize almost anything in my life. I can, you know, Rick Warren calls it rational lies. But but uh, when you're when you devote yourself to God and you're out in the middle of these woods uh, with just Him, you are a hundred percent transparent, um, and it's unsettling. It particularly at first. Uh, and then as the hours and the days uh, go by, you realize what a treasure it is just to be quiet, just just to and, and be surrounded by quiet, because I think God often talks in this still, soft voice, and with all the noise and busyness of our lives, we can't hear what he's saying. Hmm. And that is true, because God won't yell. He just won't it, yell. But that silent time had to make it a lot easier to know what to say, when you got that call that one day 
from the President of the United States. What 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 did the President of the United States want with Ward Brim? Well, at first I thought it was a joke. You know, the White House is on line four. <laughs> yeah, I got uh, friends like that too. I, I do. I totally get that. But it wasn't, and 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 it, uh, the I was asked to to be the chairman of the United States Africa Development Foundation, which is a very small, might be the smallest U.S. government agency there is, but it's a very potent agency because unlike USAID and 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 uh, all of the rest of the aid that our country does overseas, this one doesn't. This one reports to Congress uh, and to a board of directors. So it's very entrepreneurial. I, I'd never heard of it before. Um, but uh, uh, once I discovered what it what it was, uh, it, it has become just a wonderful tool for helping Africans help themselves. Uh, you know, I, I often say, if you were poor, wouldn't you want somebody to ask you your strategy for not being poor anymore? You know, usually it's top down, dropping money on things, and and in our quest to be helpful, we rob the people we're were called to serve of their dignity and respect and and this provided us uh, an opportunity to greatly expand both the reputation and the growth of this particular little agency and it was the united states africa development fund uh, foundation foundation i'm sorry foundation all right well that is because you kept using the initials in there, and I, could, I was always looking for it. Right. What, what exactly? Sorry. No, that's okay. That's a, you know? Us government bureaucrats, it's all acronyms. I, I, I slapped my face. I so bad. But one of the really cool things that happened in Ward's life as I read this book was when he got a call from then-President George W. Bush asking him to be, what was it, the, was it the leader or the super dude in charge, the head director of the, African, of the U.S. African Development Foundation. What was your title, Ward? Uh, chairman chairman all right so i loved when you when you first went on the soil of africa with the title of chairman of the u.s african the africa development foundation you met the guys that were in charge of the organization at that point in time but you met him at an unusual place where'd you find him well actually that was that wasn't me it was senator jim inhofe from oklahoma okay all right but he found him somewhere yeah, he was in Benin, in the middle of nowhere in Benin, and around the hotel pool, he saw a couple of American guys drinking a beer, and he just chatted with them and said, what are you guys doing over here? And he said, well, we're giving American taxpayer money away. <laughs> he said, oh, really? He said, so if you're supposed to be giving taxpayer money away, what are you doing having a beer around the pool? <laughs> they said, well, who are you? He said, I'm Senator Jim Inhofe, and they just about died. He came back. He actually was instrumental in my appointment. He came back and, and did everything he could to end this this uh, organization as uh, one of many very inefficient bureaucratic uh, organizations. And and uh, along the way, consulted with me. And once I looked at the bylaws and the charter of it, I said, "Wait, this thing's a jewel. You know, we're completely this this organization has complete autonomy to be able to do things that other agencies can't do, like make direct investments." in American or in African businesses, the whole thing is designed, and today USADF, uh, 100% of our uh, uh, staff in Africa are Africans. So it allows us to go and work in places that other organizations can't, like Somalia, Southern Sudan, Mali, and others. 
Well, I'm I'm sorry for having those details backwards, but I knew that the story stuck in my head. I'm I'm picturing these guys around the pool going, "Hey, we really <laughs> we got the world by the tail when they're not doing their job." And, and that's right, exactly. We all, and we're not going to go political, but we all know that happens probably way too often. Uh, that probably happens way too often. All right, but with the USADF, as you represented the United States Africa Development Foundation all over the continent of Africa, what kind of kingdom impact what kind of difference were you able to make with the money that we were given well you know one of the problems with poverty in africa is that a lot of the strategies that we use uh don't solve it so trillions of dollars have been poured into africa over the last 30 years and people are still poor uh one success story is microenterprise uh where small uh loans are given to groups of people usually women who then uh, each use that capital to buy a sewing machine, and once they've been able to repay it, it goes, it, it, it cycles around again and again and again. So what we did is we took that, we put it on steroids, and said, well, what if we had, what if we put together a hundred of these women's groups that are making these lovely, high-quality baskets in Ghana, and we'll sell them to Target, uh, and and so that we can really link these people among the poorest in the world with in this case one of the classiest retailers uh in the world and we were able to we were able to prove uh that these women number one that the products that they could create were were uh of a world-class standard uh and that by uh forming co-ops and and putting themselves together into larger organizations uh they could actually create enough uh capital and build jobs with with uh with wages that can allow them to live a decent life. Now, when you help people to feed, to, to be able to feed, get clothing and food, sorry, and shelter, it opens them up to be to hear the gospel. How did you guys work with mission missionaries there locally to say, hey, we're going to help them see, you know, kingdom kind of stuff, you know, help grow businesses and, and help people see that God can really provide for them? How did you then partner with local missionaries to be able to bring the gospel to those people? You know, I think the best way to, for me, in my experience, the best way to bring the gospel to someone uh, is to help them unconditionally, regardless of, of who they are or who I am. Be- mm. Because the, the, mo- the most powerful witness there is is when, is when someone asks you the question, why are you doing this? And my response is always, I'm doing this as a result of God's calling on my life. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing this to feel good about myself. Uh, I feel as though God has called me to uh, help in these communities. And when people see, uh, when people see particularly people in the, that have been in the field for, for years, the dedication that they have, you know, the question, why, would you, why are you here? Why aren't you home comfortable in America? You know, why are you spending your life? Why would anybody come here? Uh, and the answer, of course, is because they've been called by God to be there. And even more startling is, you know, I'm the happiest. I'm the most content that I am ever in my life when I'm, when I'm in the roughest, toughest of, of uh, circumstances in Africa because I feel as though I, I, I'm in play as it relates to this uh, peculiar calling that God gave to me. A, a peculiar calling, yet a calling you embraced, and for many... How many times have you been to Africa now, the continent? 
Well, I'm leaving in six hours for Burundi. It'll be my 56th trip. That's just fantastic. And it's just amazing how the Lord is, has used you. Now, I wanted to just take a minute. You, you end the book by really sharing some very powerful things. And we'd only have a little, we only have four minutes left. But I really, I wanted you to share about the miracles that have gone on in your family. And, and first of all, the miracle with Chris and her cancer, but how it really helped you guys to understand, to embrace the preciousness of every day. Can you tell that story? Yeah, it was, uh, it was seven years ago. <clears throat> we just returned from a ski trip. My wife had a bump on her abdomen, uh, went into the hospital, Uh, had some MRIs and so forth. We're blessed here in Minneapolis to have the Mayo Clinic just a few hours away. Uh, And she was uh, diagnosed with, uh, with terminal, with terminal cancer. It was a large tumor that had, that had, uh, that had metastasized into half of her liver, uh, totally inoperable. And they sent us home uh, saying that she had a few weeks uh, to live. And so, so we uh, obviously a tremendously difficult time. The blessing in it was uh, she was going to die. Uh, we had our whole family gathered. I mean, it, I, 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 I can't describe the sadness. I didn't even know what it was. Someone later just told me it's grief. Uh, but the sadness had no limits. The sadness was bottomless. But nevertheless, we had a very strong feeling, very strong sense. Uh, reality that everything was going to be okay. Even though she was going to die, it was somehow going to be okay. So we, so we missed all the normal emotions that go with a, with a terminal diagnosis. There was no anger, resentment, uh, none of that. Uh, this, there was sadness. Um, and what, what we realized was, I guess the biggest takeaway, Jim, for me is that I, I no longer like the word faith. I, I think it's a very benign word. It, it can mean everything. It can mean nothing. You know, you got a strong faith. Uh, how is your faith? Uh, but when you substitute the word faith for trust, it's powerful. And so it called the question, uh, first to my wife, Chris, and second to me, is do you trust Jesus? And what I can say is up to that point, I don't know how I'd answer that question because I'd never had to trust him before. You know, I trust myself, but I'm, I'm not in a position where, where I literally had to trust my wife's uh, dying into the hands of, of Jesus. Uh, and I did. And again, we experienced that peace that surpasses all understanding. Uh, this doesn't happen often, but we were given a miracle. And inoperable, we, they lifted up a genius uh, physician, he's his Dr. Nagorni, also known as the magician, who agreed to give the to give it a shot. Said it, the chance of success was unlikely, but that he would do the operation, and they removed the cancer, and and she was pronounced cured uh, five years later. Um, but it was uh, uh, singularly uh, one of the most impactful things that ever happened to us. And it really, it, it, it basically proved, it, it proved to me that I could trust uh, Jesus. And, and through that process, and again, we've got 15 seconds, but through that process, you learned to embrace life because of your buddy, Wheelock Whitney, embrace life three days at a time. Mm. As right. Three. Yeah. 
Yeah. So rather than rather than have a ten year plan, it, what he said is have a three day plan. And whatever you do, if you had three days to live, do it every day for the rest of your life, and you'll be in good shape. Ward Brem, thank you for sharing your life. Thank you for putting him writing, and thanks for being an I work for him today. Jim, thanks so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Well, and we appreciate you just being transparent. Just check out Ward's book on his website, biggerthanmebook.com, biggerthanmebook.com. You've been listening to the I Work For Him radio program with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower. My workplace is my mission field, but ultimately, I work for him.